Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is the 15th of September, 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible, and as soon as you can, to protect yourself and your community, get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month, you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. But right now, we are about to zoom across eight time zones to speak with an amazing astrophysicist, Amir Nezam Amiri, who is in the Arcetri Observatory near Florence in Italy. Hello, Amir Nezam. Hello, Brandon. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Amina Zamamiri, who is a PhD student at the Department of Physics and Astronomy at the University of Florence and a PhD researcher at Italy's famous National Institute for Astrophysics and Astronomy, INAF, in Ecetri in Florence in Italy. Amina Zam is working to finalise his PhD on physical conditions of ionised gas and the focus of his research has been on metallicity measurements in both star-forming and active galactic nuclei galaxies, AGN galaxies. In 2019, Amenazam won the Summer Internship Prize in Tenerife at the Canary Islands Instituto at Astrophysica de Canarias. Also, Amenazam is doing fabulous science outreach. He's translated more than eight books into the Persian language, and he's written over 75 public articles in different popular journals and newspapers. Thanks so much for speaking with us, Amir Azam. Thank you very much for your warm invitation and the kind introduction. It would be a nice pleasure to be here, Brent. Excellent. So before we look at your research and your current work at the University of Florence and INEF, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Amir Azam? where your passion for science and astronomy came from? So I was born and raised in Tehran. Tehran is the capital of Iran with a population of around 9 million in the city. Tehran is the most uh, populous city in Iran and Western Asia and has the second largest metropolitan area in the Middle East. And actually, the interesting point is the weather in our city, Tehran, has a cold, semi-arid climate with continental climate characteristic and a Mediterranean climate 
uh, precipitation pattern. Tehran's climate is largely defined by its geographic locations with the towering Alborz mountains to its north and the country's central desert to the south. It can be generally described as mild in the spring and autumn, hot and dry in summer, and cold in winter, and you can mainly see four seasons in the city. So as you know, Iran is one of the oldest kingdom country. In this case, we expect to have a lot of historical cities. About Tehran, uh, actually, archaeological remains from the ancient city of Ray suggest that settlement in Tehran dates back over 8,000 years ago. And because of this historical point, you can follow different, different historical timelines, such as classical era, 11 BC, medieval period, early modern era, late modern era, and so on. About your second question, actually about the passion in the science, uh, since I was six, uh, there were two interesting questions for me. In the sky, what stars are and underground, how does warm life? For first, my mother and my aunt read astronomy books for me and we discussed about them and I learned about the Newton gravity law. About second questions means worms underground, I and my mother and my grandmother tried to answer my question about worms uh, with both studying encyclopedia books and doing some experimental works on my grandmother's garden. Always I have this question that is there any similarity between worm movements and stars movement from fundamental aspects? For example, I thought if we can predict how a worm moves, can we use this kind of knowledge to predict a star's movement or not? Although to answer these questions, I should wait for uh, 15 years to learn fundamental of physics and mathematics, particularly calculus. After I went to elementary school and I could learn writing and reading, I started to study more about stars. But after four or five years, I knew all public details about stars planets, solar system, exoplanets, and for, and for learning more items, I needed that mention time period for 15 years to calculate some. So it was my journey since I was a child and actually it is continuous time uh, until now. Fantastic, that's wonderful having mother and grandmother as part of that story. Now, just before we begin this interview, Modern astronomy owes a huge debt to the ancient Iranian and Persian astronomers. And I just read all about the Maragia Observatory. Would you like to tell our listeners and give them a brief introduction to some of the ancient Iranian astronomy that they may not have heard about? A good question. And about mention observatory, Marage observatory, or in a Persian pronunciation, Marage. This observatory was an astronomical observatory established in 1259 CE under the patronage of the Ilhanik Ulagu and the directorship of Nasiruddin Tusi, a Persian scientist and astronomer. This place uh, actually was located in the high space of Marage which is today uh, situated in the East Azerbaijan provinces of Iran. It was once considered the most advanced scientific institution in the Eurasian world. 
Persian polymath Nasiruddin Tusi, he made invaluable contribution to astronomy and later served as a scientific advisor of the Mongol. So before addressing about uh, names and scientists, just uh, probably a few interesting items, ancient Persians celebrated the vernal equinox, summer solstice, autumnal equinox, and winter solstice through a variety of different festivals and traditions. It shows they have a very regular calculation based on their accurate knowledge in the sky. So just a few more examples. Our new year happens in vernal equinox. No rose is the day of the vernal equinox and the moment the sun crosses the celestial equator has been calculated for a year. No rose actually was an important day during the Achaemenid period and continued in importance through the Sasanian dynasty. In autumnal equinox, we have a very special ancient celebration with the name of Mehrigan. Mehrigan is an ancient Zoroastrian and Persian festival celebrating the autumnal equinox since at least the fourth century BC. About Iranian astronomers, we have a long list. Mainly, they are many scientific achievements which never distribute in their time fairly, and many years later, other people found a similar result and they could have their name on, in another part of the world, for example. Apart from this fact, I address about a few of them who are extremely important for me. Uh, one, uh, Al-Biruni, was well-known in physics, mathematics, astronomy, and natural sciences, and also distinguished himself as a historian, chronologist, and linguist. Al-Biruni contributed to the introduction of the scientific method to medieval mechanics. He developed experimental methods to determine density using a particular, or a particular type of hydrostatic balance. The second person is Omar Khayyam, was a Persian polymath, mathematician, philosopher, astronomer, and poet. In the field of mathematics, he is best known for his work on the classification and solution of cubic equations. As an astronomer, he designed a solar calendar known as the Jalali calendar. Another person is Avancina, renowned as father of early modern medicine. Avancina was an illustrious Persian polymath. He is especially distinguished for his contribution in the fields of medicine and Aristotelian philosophy. He is best known for his works, namely the Canon of Medicine and the Book of Healing. The purpose of his writing also includes alchemy, geology, psychology, geography, physics, poetry, and Islamic uh, theology. And for example, at the end for another name that I really interest him is Fahruddin Razi was a Persian polymath and Islamic scholar. He wrote influential works in the field of cosmology, astronomy, physics, medicine, chemistry, theology, literature, history, and philosophy, a person way ahead of his time. Fahruddin Razi was one of the earliest champions of the concept of multiverse and arc about the actuality of the outer space. You can address about other people such as uh, Abdul Rahman, Sufi, and others that they were fantastic people. And, and if you just follow the uh, timeline of this story, we can see that all of the people from the prehistorical time until now are enthusiastic to learn about natural science 
in Iran and actually in Persia. And at the present time, uh, we have an Iranian National Observatory aims at the construction of observing facilities for astronomical research. And they are building a new big telescope at the present time under leading Habib Postur Shahi. The principal telescope with the name of INO 340 is a 3.4 meter diameter optical telescope offering a field of view of 20 arc minutes with an image resolution of better than 0.5 arc second across the field. So it seems the love in astronomy in Iran is particular and essential items. Fantastic. What a rich history and such accuracy. Okay. Uh, Look, let's go back to your story now, Nianazam. Please tell us a little about your school days and your early ambitions, and you're well on the way to your doctorate at the moment. How have your ambitions changed over the years? Uh, school days from elementary school up to one year before finishing high school were great. A huge number of interesting lessons, research, field trip. Uh, labor- experimental items in laboratory and so on. As I told you, my early ambition was knowing about a source and essential astronomy. This ambition mm, did not change as a function of time and its intensity always has been increased. Uh, my constant inspiration is the magic coincidence between all items in our universe and we can describe them by physics laws with different surfaces, from the classical mechanics, especially general, general relativity, to quantum mechanics and thermodynamics, with a mathematical description. In all my life, I, I uh, live with science, and I try to find a question about an event and trying to find its fundamental answers. A few moments ago, I told uh, you that up to one year before finishing high school, in that time, because of one uh, biological experiments in laboratory, I found a serious problem on my lungs and for 24 months, it adversely affected my health. So there was no interesting activity, even normal or daily working this period. But for all of the days through my life, always uh, my inspirations about astronomy was, is, and will constant and always enthusiastic to know and learn about its fundamentals. Fantastic. Great questions. And it looks like you've been on this quest for quite some time. So after your school career, you completed your bachelor's degree in astrophysics at Assad University in Tehran, Iran. Then your master's degree in astronomy and physics at Kazama University and simultaneously a research assistant at the Institute for Research in Fundamental Sciences, also in Tehran. And now you are close to the completion of your PhD in Florence. Would you like to tell us about that big move up to Florence and how are your skills in the Italian language going? So very interesting question. To answer your first question, it is critical in an academic career to acquire expertise in several places. It is a necessary item for learning more and more. I had uh, four confirmed PhD applications for the PhD position. All of the applications were intriguing. I chose the University of Florence for two reasons from my perspective. The first, for my master thesis, I studied a handful of excellent papers 
and agents and quasars uttered by one of my supervisors, my current supervisor, Alessandro Marconi, it absorbed me because of this kind of family. Uh, secondly, living in a historical and significant city could teach me a lot about cultural details. So I went with that. About your second question for learning the Italian language, regarding, uh, I apologize for not knowing Italian at all. To be honest, I arrived in Florence uh, in the middle of November, 2019. And after a little time of spreading COVID, everything was canceled and we were in the line for it like that, approximately 1.8 months. There was no place to study. Consider it a legitimate reason, but honestly, it is an unfair excuse. Fantastic. Okay. All right. Now, we know that master's students and PhDs have wonderful supervisors and mentors. Would you like to tell us about some of the people who have inspired and supported your science studies and who are you working with right now? So it is difficult to mention the names of individual who helped me because the number is large. Yep. I have always had the opportunity to meet amazing people, both inside and outside of academia. Both my fabulous friends and my supervisor or colleagues had a positive impact on me. To be brief and to the point, I can mention three classifications. The most important people are my family, means my mother, my aunts, and my grandmother, who always make a nice perspective to see science in the real case. And my uh, cousin, Matty, and two friends of mine, Hakpur and Horam, who I speak with them a lot about the influence of the philosophy on science and why we should know both uh, philosophy and science simultaneously. Secondly, uh, the interesting point in my life we established a friendly cosmology group discussion panel at an Institute for Research in Fundamental Sciences in Iran, around 10 years ago with about 80 of my friends. And every week on Wednesday from 2 p.m. to 11 p.m., we studied galaxy formation and evolution based on a book by the same name. And one author is the great scientist Simon White. This group buzzed up the cosmology circle, despite the fact that the majority of these friends are at prestigious universities and institutes around the world. We, hold, we hold our chats eight times per year, more or less. These friends are great at physics, from the theoretical physics to brain physics and so on. And I really appreciate it. And at the end, uh, my main supervisors from undergraduate level until now really made my past career in a perfect scientific style. I quickly pass over their name. They are in my mind, they are in my mind now, and maybe I miss a few of them. As a function of time, respectively, Tahere Purmi Jafari, Shahram Khosravi, Saeed Tawassoli, Habib Khosrushahi, Abraham Loeb, Johan Knafen, Alessandro Marconi, Giovanni Cresci, Filippo Menucci, Francesco Belfiore, Mirko Curti, Weigar, Gianfranco Dezuti, and Edvige Corbelli. And for your second questions, at the present time, I am working uh, with a few of these names. Alessandro Marconi and Giovanni Cresci are my main supervisors. And Filippo Menucci, Francesco Belfiore, and Mirko Curti are my co-advisor and collaborators for my PhD tests. Fantastic. It sounds like you've got 
several families. You've got your family who you've grown up with who are giving you fantastic support. And then you've got your science family and your online family and your uh, astrophysics family and your supervisors. It sounds like you're, um, it's a real village you're in with lots of families working with you. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. Yes, um, it's completely true. Yes. A lot. Okay. Now, you've given me a title for this interview, and the title you've given me is Metallicity and Galaxy Evolution. Could you tell us, tell our listeners what metallicity is and how it plays a role in galaxy evolution, please? This is a very interesting question. To investigate how galaxies are evolved, there are different few parameters that we can directly study. For example, stellar feedback, morphology, galaxy morphology, redshift, evolution, black holes, and its coevolution with galaxies. All these items in both a small and large uh, cosmic structure can affect the metallicity. So metallicity is one of the key physical properties of galaxies and understanding the processes that regulate the exchange of metals between stars called interstellar gas and diffuse surrounding gas can help us to understand the physical processes that govern galaxy evolution in general. The evolution of the chemical properties of stellar populations and of the interstellar and intergalactic medium across the cosmic epoch provides unique information on the evolutionary process driving the formations and evolution of galaxies. In astronomy mainly, metallicity is the abundance of elements present in an object that are heavier than hydrogen and helium. Most of the normal uh, physical matters in the universe is either hydrogen or helium, and more or less astronomers use the word metals as a convenient short term for all elements except hydrogen and helium. This yes. word use is distinct from the conventional chemical or physical definition of a metal as an, an electrically conducting solid. So we should take care about uh, this word. Excellent. So let's look at your PhD thesis now. I found it, or I found the title of it online. It's Physical conditions of ionized gas. Now, some of our listeners will certainly know about the gases that we find in space, but what about ionized gas? What is ionized gas and where are these ionized gases found and what causes them to be ionized? Yeah, yes, very good question. Understanding the um, physical processes that govern the dynamical behavior of the interstellar medium uh, to be considered ISM is central to much of modern astronomy and astrophysics. The ISM is the primary galactic repository out of which stars are born and into which they deposit energy, momentum, and enrich material as they die. It uh, actually constitutes the anchor point of the galactic matter cycle and as such is the key to a consistent picture of galaxy formation evolution. The dynamics of the interstellar medium determines where and when stars form. Similarly, the properties of the planetary systems 
around these stars are intimately connected to the properties of their heart star, their heart stars, and the details of their formation process. For an example, when uh, we look at the sky on a clear night, we can notice dark patch of obscuration along the band of the Milky Way. These are clouds of dust and gas that block the light from distant stars. With the current set of the telescope and satellites, we can observe dark clouds at essentially or frequency possible. So from the low to high wavelengths and, and, and ranging from the low energy radio waves all the way up highly energetic to high, highly energetic gamma rays. So we have learned that all star formation occurring in the Milky Way and other galaxies is uh, associated with these dark clouds and mostly consistence of the cold molecular hydrogen and dust. In general, these uh, dense clouds are embedded in, uh, embedded in and dynamically connected to the larger scale and less dense atomic component. Once a stellar bird sets in, feedback becomes important. Massive stars emit copious amounts of the ionizing photons and create bubbles of hot ionized plasma, thus converting interstellar media material into a hot and very tenuous acid. In another point, material left over from the formation of young hot stars represents the most spectacular component of the interstellar medium the ionizing hydrogen or estrogens like the Orion Nebula. Uh, massive and very hot stars similar to O or B stars are recently forming molecular clouds. Ionize the gas left over from the formation, heating it to a temperature approximately uh, more than uh, 10,000 Kelvin and causing it to producing an emission line spectrum. For example, if you want to say about a short story about one part of this kind of interactions, ultraviolet photons from massive stars in a nebula have sufficient energy to strip the electrons completely away from ionized hydrogen atoms. This requires a photon of energy greater than 13.6 electrovolt. If a hydrogen atom absorbs a photon with the wavelength less than 900 angstrom, the atom is ionized with the extra energy going into the kinematic energy of the electron. Collisions between the electrons thermalize this energy heat, the nebula gas, to a temperature about 10,000 Kelvin. Collisions between electrons and ions in the gas excite the ions to higher energy levels, producing electron combination to upper level in hydrogen and helium, cascade through many energy levels down to the ground state, producing the emission features of the helium and hydrogen and so other probable or existable heavy elements. So this is, this, this is a very, very simple interactions in the interstellar medium to, ionize, to see ionized gas and probably the emission lines from uh, these parts. Fantastic. Thank you, Amanda Now, what is the big question you are asking in your PhD and what have you discovered so far? So uh, the idea is the abundances of chemical elements across cosmic epochs provide unique information on the physical processes driving the evolution of galaxies. 
Over the past decades, many attempts have been made to measure metallicities using emission lines from photoionized gas in galaxies, ranging from different metallicity estimators, such as direct measurement based on electron temperature and density, and mainly uh, people called it T-based metallicity, to calibration of relations between the line ratio and metallicities to the use of photoionization model. However, these methods are often based on simplifying assumptions with the name of single clouds, which does not adequately describe the complexity of the emitting regions and the reliability is questioned. We analyze or we are analyzing a set of galaxy spectra using our new multiple component photoionization models which are able to reproduce all observed emission lines with a very high accuracy down to a few percent, mainly both low and high ionization emission lines simultaneously. Our, our model does allow for accurate metallicity measurements and to recover the well-known trends between the ionization parameter and metallicity and so on. This work is a combination of observational data and simulation works to do simulations in this work, uh, we are using the photoionization modeling code with the name of Cloudy, uh, which was written by Fairland many, many years ago to generate a synthetic spectra of H2 regions. Cloudy calculates the full radiative transfer through the gas cloud, so each individual H2 region or a star-forming model has internal structure with radial variation in ionization state and temperature. So in this case, with uh, using some idea for the initial physical conditions, we can reproduce all of the needed spectra by this kind of a simulation. So, but at the end, as a result, if we able to reproduce all sensitive emission lines in simulation according to observation, it means we could provide correct initial condition in simulated work. By contrast of observation that we are limited to investigate about our suitable detail, in simulation we can positively address to all-minded detail and we can know more about phenomena and observation. So it will certainly or particularly work for future research to study metallicity and mainly its measurement for having more uh, precision. Fantastic. Oh, that's awesome. Okay. So could you tell us about the instruments and the data that you use to study ionized gases? So uh, we are using a wide range of data, but at the present time, I am using data from SDSS, the Ethlon Digital Sky Survey, or in a compact manner, SDSS. Actually, this survey is a major multi-spectral imaging and spectroscopic redshift survey using a dedicated 2.5-meter wide-angle optical telescope at Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico, U.S. If I want to address a little more, we are mainly focused on the low star-forming, low redshift star-forming galaxy to study their inter to, to study their ISM emission lines and how they are evolving and our main parameter to focus about their measurement is metallicity. So at the present time, SCSS data is my main data to investigate about that. That's great, Amir Nazam. Now, 
Are you close to finishing your PhD? And are you doing your PhD by writing a series of published papers? Or will you have to defend your thesis in front of a panel? Uh, yes, my PhD period will be finished at the end of January 2023. And I should do my defense in the middle of the March. Both. We should have our unpublished papers and having a defense on my thesis in front of a scientific panel. Thank you. Look, I, I really hope it will be continue to be a success and a wonderful experience for you. It's fantastic to see the way our understanding of metallicity, evolution and iron-iron gases, it's making such great progress. What are your plans after you finish your PhD? And then we can call you Dr. Amiri. What's next for you? Thanks. Every person is entitled to his or her opinion, but I do like do not like this title of honor. At the present time, there are two main items on my way: doing my PhD defense and applying for a postdoc position. So they are two main goals that I should finish them. Yep. Excellent. So now you're living in Florence. What does the rest of 2022 look like? And what does it look like for you? It sounds like there's a lot of challenges. You've got interesting colleagues. You've got your family back home. You've got lots of work to do, plus a change in the local culture. Do you get some time off to go exploring? Do you have any plans? At the present time, there are a huge number of works that uh, I should finish them. So, and so certainly... There is no free space to come back to country for the vacation and so on. About your the questions about the time up to go, the exploring, yes, Florence was the, uh, as you know, Florence was the birthplace of high Renaissance art, which lasted from 1450 to 1000, approximately 527 or 28. While medieval art focused on basic storytelling of the Bible, Renaissance art focused on naturalism and human emotion. Medieval art was abstract, formalistic, and largely produced by monks, whereas Renaissance art was rational, mathematical, individualistic, concept of a linear perspective, and shading and produced by professional and masterpiece humans total independence or coloring. By, for example, Leonardo da Vinci, Donatella, Michelangelo, and Raphael. There are almost 100 museums in the city, and the most worldwide masterpieces arts have been created here. Yes, I attempted to visit many of them, including the Galileo Museum, the Uffizi Gallery, Michelangelo's David Sculpture, and Big Dog, and also reading a few uh, fabulous masterpiece books, works by Dante, the Divine Comedy, and books written by Oriana Palacci, for example, Letter to a Child Never Born, A Man a Hat Full of Cherries. So totally, I try to find uh, some kind of a journey through my life in the forensic. And actually, I should continue this kind of a journey because there are a lot of interesting items that I have never visited here yet. Oh, so many things to do. I really like Florence. It's a lovely city and a hundred museums. I've only been to one there. I remember standing in a very long queue in the rain to get into the Uffizi. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, at this stage in our interview here, 
The microphone is all yours, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face together in science or science denialism or career paths or equity or diversity for our quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours. Oh, thank you very much, Brandon. Uh, so I am not in a level to advise others. The only important item that I think it can adversely affect the, the new generation of the scientists are two items in science. So I like to speak about that because recently I am observing that the most clever people with the high intelligence are leaving the academia, so it is so bad. First, uh, I know that finding scientific career and having enough passion under a lot of the pressure caused to people leave academia, yep. especially at the present time after ending their PhD or the postdoc. In a timeline, finding a scientific permanent job is always hard. I yep. want to say, please do not be pessimist regarded for the young, actually a young researcher, and to become sure you will find your career even a little late. Secondly, with using machinery procedures and existing a huge volume of data, I see uh, most PhD or postdoc, PhD student, postdocs, researchers are locked to their computer and their codes, and their journey into their science, especially theoretical aspects, are reducing. Without knowing what exactly is going ahead in background of our research, our research transforms to a normal research and not scientific research. Please try to keep swimming in nature world. So I think these two uh, mentioned uh, items are very important and trying to keep it in a good way. Yeah, so true. Okay. Thanks, Amanazam. Now, is there anything else we should watch out for in the near future? What are you keeping your eye on? So, it's a very good question. At the present time, we should keep our eye on uh, two dimensions. First, from the theoretical point, people are doing very exciting research in quantum gravity to clarify the fundamental connection between general relativity and quantum mechanics, and the results are very awesome. In observational case, with having data in both James Webb Space Telescope or JWST and SKA Square Kilometer Arrays, there are a huge number of new scientific cases that we should explore in all of the objects in our universe. So I think our knowledge about the universe will be changed a lot, and we should wait for the new data. I'm working a lot for finding the new laws in the nature of the universe. Exactly. It's a very exciting time to have so many amazing instruments coming online and providing all of this data. And it's so great to have researchers like you who are turning that basic data into information and knowledge that helps us understand our place in the universe as well. Well, thank you so much well, almost Dr. Amirnazam Amiri. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you so much for painting such a clear history of the way you're exploring galaxy evolution. Thank you for telling us about the ancient Persian astronomers. 
and thank you for your time and I hope you continue to have a lovely time at your home institutes and of course at the Akethri Observatory in Ferenz. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Brendan, and hope to see you again. Okay, bye-bye. And remember, Astrophys is free and unsponsored, and we're very happy to recommend that you can always get the latest and best space news from Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com. And for observers and astrophotographers, always check out Dr. Ian Musgrave's Astroblogger website. We'll see you in two weeks when we'll bring you Ian's Sky Guide. Radio Wave!